You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. Like Bevan said, I'm Andrew. I'm the student pastor here. And it's exciting to be with you this morning speaking about Generation Z. I'm really excited. And I thought it was appropriate to start off with a confession, okay? I am a millennial. I was born in 1989, but I can't really claim the 80s because I don't remember them. I didn't remember mullets or hair metal. So I'm a 90s kid at heart. I grew up watching Home Improvement. I'm pretty sure I learned how to grunt from Tim Allen, right? <laughs> I, I learned about athletics from American Gladiators. You guys remember that show? My favorite channel of all the channels was Nickelodeon growing up. They had this show called Games and Sports where kids battled each other, and at the end they climbed this mountain called the Agro Crag, and it was awesome. Another one of my favorites, Legends of the Hidden Temple. No idea what it was about. What it was about. Like, honestly, I just saw a bunch of kids running around on the coolest obstacle course. As a, as a kid, that was awesome for me. And then, what 90s kid didn't grow up watching The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? That was one of my favorite shows, honestly, until I got through college. I watched way too much of that show. And you might be wondering, Andrew, did you go outside? Yes, I did. I promise. And when I did, I didn't have a cell phone to check in with my mom. It was back in the day where she would give me like a one-mile radius around my house, and she'd just say, come home when the streetlights come on, right? And my first cell phone, I got it when I was 14. I brought it, well, a version of it. Here it is. Isn't it cute, right? <laughs> it's actually, it's not the original Nokia brick phone that everyone talks about that has snake. This one has bowling on it, and it was full color, so, you know, <laughs> pretty, pretty awesome. But I got a cell phone in the days when we called texting SMS. Did you guys... You, we didn't know what to call it. It was so new. So she was like, send me an SMS. It's cool. And you also had cell phone plans where you were responsible not only for the text messages you sent, but also the ones that people sent to you. I think I was limited to 100 text messages a month. I was just like, how am I going to control what people send to me? I didn't get that many texts. It's fine. It was new, right? It was totally fine. So I learned about, I learned about doomsday prepping from going to Walmart before Y2K, right? The shelves were empty. And, you know, I'll never forget where I was sitting when I learned about 9-11. I was in middle school, and the principal came over the loudspeaker, and he said, hey, teachers, everybody, go back to what you're doing. Please teach today, because they all had the TVs on watching the news. And, of course, all the teachers, I mean, they ignored that. We, we watched what happened live throughout the day. I'll never forget where I was that day. I entered college at, a, at an interesting time as a millennial. It was literally the year of the subprime mortgage crisis. And so the Great Recession, as it has now been called, started when I was in college. I was getting a degree in finance. I was wondering, you know, is there going to be a job for me whenever I get out of college? It seems like an important thing. And then I was a stockbroker for some pretty funny times. Uh, Brexit happened, and as my wealthier clients would say, it was Black Friday for stocks. You know, they'd call in, they got everything about 10 or 15% off. And then I was also a stockbroker during the Pokemon Go craze, and I had to figure out how to trade international stocks. I had no idea what I was doing. So when we say millennial or baby boomers, Gen X, Gen Y, millennials, Gen Z, or now even Gen Alpha, what we're talking about, these are, are social generations. These don't equate to our families. These are socially our generation. They're basically just large subcategories of our population based on the year we were born, but it's always, to me, just seem more than that. There's something that 
is unique to each generation. You kind of feel it if you're in the generation, but you definitely know it about the other generations, right? And so I've been thinking about what, what does it actually mean to be a generation? Because the events that I experienced that I just talked to you about, they're not unique to me. If you're over the age, I mean, of 10, you experienced all of those things. So what is it that defines a generation? Well, it's actually, it's our shared experiences at similar life stages, That's what makes us a generation. We go through the same stuff at the same time. And that shapes our perspective. That kind of shapes how we see the world. It it affects each one of our generations a little bit differently. And of course, there are exceptions, but by and large, that's what happens. So why focus on Gen Z? I mean, there are plenty of people in the world still that are alive that we, we do need to help know about God. So why Gen Z? Why are we focusing on them? Well, as I studied for the series, as I was thinking about what we wanted to talk about, I came across a passage from the Psalms, and it was speaking of the amazing things that God had done in Israel's history, and it, and it really hit me. So I want to read it to you. Psalm 78, verses 4 through 7, says, We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. For he issued his laws to Jacob, he gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children so the next generation might know them, even the children not yet born. And they, in turn, will teach their own children. So each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. And while this verse, it's really talking about family generations, the principle is the same. For us as Christians, our mission is generational. It's future-focused. We, We have a responsibility to tell the next generations about who God is and what he has done, what what he's done for them, and we we get the opportunity to help them learn to walk with him. So we're going to spend the next few weeks trying to understand a little bit more about Gen Z, and I really hope that you, you walk away from this series with the sense that God really loves future generations, and I really do hope that your desire to be a part of taking the gospel to Gen Z and beyond I hope it grows. And you'll notice in your seats these cards. They say Gen Z on one side. Go ahead and grab these. On the back, you'll find a verse that we're going to memorize together. The verse is Romans 1:16, and it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And we want to memorize this verse in this series because there really are some Jew and Gentile level differences between the generations, but at the, at the core, we all need the same thing. We all need the gospel. And so that's why we're going to be memorizing this verse together. Our goal is actually to unite around what God is, is doing into the future, the mission he's given us, and we need to figure out how we're going to share the gospel with younger generations because it might look a little bit different. The message is the same but the method might change. So I'd like for us to read this out loud together real quick. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Okay, so it might be helpful if we start out by defining who Gen Z actually is. Who are these people? So I did bring facts and data and charts, but right now these are the fun facts, okay? Gen Z is anyone born between 1997 and 2012. That means anyone right now that is alive ages 10 to 25 
is Gen Z. They grew up watching shows like SpongeBob, Hannah Montana was, was cool, Phineas and Ferb, iCarly, and on Nickelodeon they had Avatar The Last Airbender. Those were the shows for Gen Z. And Y2K and 9-11, these are actually events in history to Gen Z. Either they were too young to remember them or they were born after they occurred. The Great Recession, starting in 2008, it was a significant part of their early childhood. You know, maybe they grew up seeing mom and dad struggle with their job and what was happening. So it actually did affect the way they view the future. Some would even say that they don't believe that you necessarily have to use the traditional routes of success to succeed. And a, a fun fact, a really cool fact, actually, is they're the most racially diverse generation in the U.S. right now. I think that's pretty cool. And while those are some fun facts to kind of give you an idea of who Gen Z is, today we're going to look at two defining characteristics of the generation. We'll look first at what makes them unique, and then we'll talk about how we're all the same at the end. But the first thing that makes Gen Z unique is that they really are a spiritual blank slate. I want to show you the U.S. religious identity study broken down by generations. You'll see it up behind me. On the left is Gen Z, the younger generations. On the right is the older generations. And I want to point out two trends that we see here. There's a percentage of those who, who self-identify as Christians. That demographic is actually shrinking. You see it goes from 51% to 42% across the generations at a pretty steep pace. And it makes sense that on the other side of that, the second trend is that the percentage of those who are religiously unaffiliated is growing. Actually, one of the largest growing religious groups in the United States at this moment is the non-religious. I read a book once called uh, Rise of the Nuns, and it's talking about this idea, this idea that the largest religious group that's growing is the non-religious group. And so that is reflected here across the generations. And so 34% of Gen Z have no religious affiliation. That's compared to 30% in millennials and even less in generations before that. But you may think 34 versus 30%, that's not a huge difference. The way they got to that number is what makes all the difference. I would say that for millennials like me, often we would culturally start off maybe going to church or identify with the church, and we left the church. That is our trend, is that we've been leaving the church. Gen Z carried that on, and they didn't just leave, they just never showed up. They never grew up coming to church. So millennials left, Gen Z just didn't go. And you might actually be looking at the 42% of Gen Z saying like, hey, they're Christian, like, that's pretty good, right? 42% is great. I agree. I think that's a, a solid number. I'm glad it's not like two, right? 42% is great. But I want to show you actually a specific graph of that number, what, what Gen Z's specific face segments look like. And you'll notice something at the top. It says 9% are engaged Christians. So if you add the 9 and the 33, that's the 42%. So in that 42% that say, hey, I'm a Christian, 9% are engaged, which they define as the, these are people who say they put their faith front and center in their lives. So what that really means is that 9% of the generation are engaged Christians, which is like, okay, cool. Their grandparents are at 14%. Across 20 to 30 years, that's a 5% drop. And you only had 14 to drop to get to zero. So five, five is a pretty big. I would say that's significantly smaller than their grandparents at 14%. The number who identify as spiritual but not religious are growing. 
So I think to summarize this, I would, I would just say that God is not a personal part of their history, by and large, for many, for many people in that age group. I mean, as a nation, we do have a rich Christian history, just culturally. I mean, historically, even through cultural osmosis, you learned some of the Christian values, you knew some of the lingo, maybe some of the stories. But Generation Z marks a massive cultural shift that has occurred. Younger generations, uh, they likely learn about Jesus from the media. So what's said in the shows that they watch, and what's said about Christians from the news and different media outlets, most likely what's said on TikTok and Instagram, people's opinions. They aren't growing up in the church. They don't typically read the Bible for themselves. And actually, for this generation, there's a growing pressure to not identify as a Christian. It's not a cultural advantage to say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Actually, it's working against them. So practically, this means for Generation Z that God really isn't a factor in decision-making. He's not really a factor also in questions of morality. I mean, most people, I mean, they're really trying to do what is right, what is good, but they can't define what that means. They can't come to the same standard, and they definitely don't want to apply that standard to other people. So the church isn't really the place that they're going to look for answers. Current studies show that they're more likely to go to TikTok and Instagram if they have a question and search it there. They'd rather see something explained to them than read about it. So when it comes to the Bible, what this means is that largely they couldn't communicate the fundamental themes, maybe some of the stories, Jesus' teachings, or how salvation works. That's why we say that, by and large, they're a spiritual blank slate. I think the verdict is in for most scholars about Generation Z in the United States. This is the first post-Christian generation. Specifically in the United States, this is a phenomenon that's happened in other places, but here in the U.S., Gen Z is the first official post-Christian generation. And what that means is that they're the first generation raised largely outside of the church. So that's significant. That's unique. And then the second way that Gen Z is unique is they have always been digitally connected. Gen Z has always been digitally connected. So I thought it'd be fun to play a noise for you guys that I grew up with. Maybe some of you will recognize this. Please, about 15 seconds. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Mm, so good. That's the noise of my childhood as a teenager. You know, I heard that noise every day, seven or eight times a day. The internet would drop whenever we were trying to dial up because a friend would call. You get frustrated. You have to go through the seven-minute process of connecting the internet again so you could basically just text your friends from a computer. Uh, so... That's a very different experience than Generation Z. I mean, many mark the invention of the iPhone in 2007 as a start of what they call the digital revolution. Many would actually argue that this digital revolution is on par with the impact of the industrial revolution, specifically on the way it affects our lives every day. I mean, it ha like phones, high-speed internet, they have affected our lives so much. I would be shocked if less than 90% of this room didn't have a cell phone on them right now. I don't have mine on me, and it feels weird. You know, like, we all have access to the internet, but while many of us have this technology and we got it when we were older, Generation Z has come of age in the digital age. High-speed internet, it's everywhere. 95% of teens have access to a smartphone, and what that means is that they have a supercomputer in their pockets. I mean, right now, there are billions, if not trillions, of hours of entertainment available 
Fun fact, every single hour, 30,000 hours of videos are uploaded to YouTube. Every single hour, 30,000 hours of videos are uploaded. Students in school have Chromebooks, and they do their work digitally. If they can do it on their phones, they want to. Anything that they can do on their phones, they will do on their phones. So I think the digital revolution, it has created a new landscape for life. And as the name suggests, it's a digital landscape. It's everywhere. And just to kind of help us understand more of how this has affected, you know, 10 to 25-year-olds, I brought some studies. I think they're kind of mind-blowing. Whenever, when I saw them, they blew my mind a little bit. There are two things that I wanted to share with you today in some studies. According to a study done by Common Sense Media in 2021, it says this, currently teenagers, on average spend over eight and a half hours per day of screen time on entertainment. We're not talking schoolwork or anything that is helping them like with school or anything like that. This is, this is eight and a half hours plus on average of screen time for entertainment. Now, I think it's safe to say a majority of young people, they do have unlimited access to the internet. Here's a mind-blowing fact, at least for me, it was that 60% of young people have never had the content they're consuming checked by a parent. We're talking browser history, apps, the web browser on their game consoles. Yes, it exists and it has a history. I mean, I even, there are even web browsers on like your e-ink Kindle, right? Like there's an w- internet browser on there. None of that has ever been monitored for 60% of a young generation. Now, I was introduced to YouTube videos on my phone as an adult, and I still struggle to watch it too much. I really, I can't imagine the pull of consuming media like that young people experience every day because they've grown up consuming media for hours and hours a day. They've grown up with the internet. So, I mean, when I'm talking to students, I can be pretty passionate about not being uh, controlled or mastered by anything so that we can devote ourselves fully for God. And so what that means, I have a reputation that I hate cell phones with the student ministry here. And I mean, they're not wrong. I do kind of hate them, full disclosure. It's because I love them too much. Like, that's the issue. So I warn students about cell phone addiction. I think it's a very real thing. I encourage them to just take time away from their screens, just to show themselves, like, hey, you don't have to be controlled by this, because I've, I've seen so many people that just hundreds of times just pick up their phones without even thinking about it. Anytime I'm in charge of an event, and like when we go to a summer camp, I set very specific cell phone rules. They can only use them during free time, and if they leave them at home, I'm so stoked. Anytime I hear a student's like, yeah, I just decided to leave my phone at home, I'm like, yes, that's great, that's amazing. And it's not because... I'm anti-cell phones. I really am anti-addiction when it comes to the screens. I personally need to do a better job of my own screen time, but I think it's safe to say that the digital revolution, it has shaped a generation. Now, you might be thinking, you know, I didn't grow up with a cell phone in my hand, and technically, I didn't either. And in fact, technology, for the most part, it's not the problem. The problem are the people. People are the problem. And so we might have struggled with different things as teens because our circumstances were different, but our hearts are the same. The struggle is the same, just in a different circumstance. So I want us to spend the rest of our time really digging into how we're the same. So I want to look at two ways all hearts are the same, because that's where the problem is. It's in our hearts. We're going to look at Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10. It teaches us two really important things about the human heart. It says, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. 
So the first thing we can take away from this verse is that all hearts are deceitful. That's fun. You know, like we're deceitful. The most deceitful of all things. And this is such a fascinating word. The Old Testament and large was written in Hebrew. And the word translated deceitful here means to supplant. It's not a word we talk about all the time, but it's this picture of someone who's a lower status trying to undermine someone who is of a higher status, their leader. And it actually comes from a very specific word in Hebrew that we get the word heal from. Literally, the word heal is the word deceitful or supplant. And that's because in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, it tells us about Jacob. And the word Jacob, the name, actually means heal. Jacob was the second born of a set of twins. He came out of the womb holding his brother's heel. He was the second, and so that's where he gets his name from, because he's holding on to his brother's heel. The idea is that he would try and undermine his brother Esau and take his authority. And actually, Jacob, Jacob ended up tricking his brother Esau out of his birthright. This was something that described Jacob. He was someone who undermined. And what this means for us in this verse is that your heart is actually actively working to trip you up and take over your life, to take it away from the things that God says are the best. It's, it's trying to tie your shoelaces together while you're not lo- looking, right? It's trying to trip you up. Or if you have kids and you've gone to the grocery store, you're walking in front of the grocery cart and all of a sudden you get hit in the heels, call flat tire. It's trying to do that to you. So for all of us, what that means is we don't need unlimited access to the internet to get deceived. You have all that you need right inside. It's in our hearts. And the second thing we learn from this verse about our hearts, it's another fun one, is that we're desperately wicked. I know, really encouraging. And this word, what it literally means is incurably sick. It's like the writer was saying that the spiritual diagnosis of our hearts, it's terminal. We're sick, we can't cure it. In fact, on your handouts, I gave you a tool to remember our sad spiritual state, to remember our sad hearts. It stands for selfish, arrogant, and damaging. Those will be the fill in the blanks. This means, practically, that we'll, we'll run over people who get in our way. We'll intentionally harm others to get what we want. We see this all the time. Like, who hasn't seen a kid hit another kid when they get in their way or they take a toy or they do something they don't want or cry to manipulate and get what they want just so that they'll be quiet? I mean, in elementary school, someone I knew threw a block at a kid because his name rhymed with pickle. It starts young, and it just gets more interesting from there. Now, some of you might be thinking, Andrew, I don't assault people, and I definitely don't throw blocks at people. That's good, because it's illegal. I don't know if you know that. But as adults, often our willingness to damage others, it's more sophisticated, but it's still hurtful. It is still harmful. When someone, you know, they upset us, we can manipulate, or we try sometimes. Like, we use our emotions to get what we want. Maybe you give the cold shoulder or the silent treatment if you're upset at someone that you're close to. If you guys were, like, living in the same house, it'd be like you were awkward roommates that didn't talk for a little while. You know, like, that's the silent treatment. Or maybe you're on the opposite end of the spectrum, and you don't want to draw it out for a long time. You just want to yell really loud or drop a nuclear bomb that would just end the conversation, and and you don't care as long as you just get out of the conversation. You want it to be done, and you want to win. Maybe you'll say some really hurtful things. What's happening inside of the human heart, I think it's really clear, not just from the scriptures, but from our own experience as well, that the human heart is deceptive and desperately wicked. 
It's so wicked, actually, that no one really knows how wicked it is besides God. The world actually says the problem, it's out there. But we know that the problem is in here. And God says, this is where the problem is at. And and we carry it with us. We can't get away from it. And so what did God do? God offers us a new heart. In Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, this is when it gets encouraging, guys. I will give you a new heart, is what he says. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And and that is exactly what Jesus came to do. He offers his power and his presence in our lives to combat our brokenness, our sinfulness, and change us from the inside out. That's what Jesus came to do. And in fact... That's why in Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He knows that every person, regardless of, of generation, where they grew up, that they have the same dead heart. And he's got the only message that can make it new. That's why Paul isn't ashamed of the gospel. God's the one that changes people from the inside out. And that's the only message of hope that can really change a heart. You know, as a society, though, we, we, we want to find an answer for our heart problem other than the one that involves submitting to God. We, we want to fix our broken hearts ourselves. And actually, you know, I searched the internet for a heart-shaped rock to somehow illustrate this point. I thought it'd be kind of dramatic to, like, thud it on the ground and be like, that's our hearts before Jesus, you know. But what my search, it actually returned to me, it was pretty sad. I did find heart-shaped rocks, but they... They claim to promote spiritual life. They were made of different materials that promise to promote happiness, love, and lower stress by letting off some type of energy. And all I needed to do was carry it in my pocket and rub them every once in a while, and it would, it would help me with lower stress. You know, and it never occurred to me as I walked around life that, that there were people that I see, or some people at least, that were so desperate for help and change that they looked to a rock in their pocket. But no physical element, no mixture of substances on the periodic table of elements can solve our spiritual problem. So, I mean, add rock rubbing to the list, the long list of things people do to distract themselves from their own brokenness. Maybe for you, it's not rock rubbing. It might be the toys you have, the sports you've played, the things you've experienced, the money you've earned. Maybe it's just a big pile of good stuff you're trying to do. Giving us a new heart is not something that we do. It's something that God does. He says he will give us a new heart. So what about you? What are your next steps? As we're talking about Gen Z, what can you do with what you've heard? Well, if you haven't decided to follow Jesus and you do have questions, that's great. I encourage you, work hard to get those answered. In fact, we'll be looking at some of the questions that people in Gen Z are asking next week, and I encourage you to join us for that. But for those of us who are on the outside looking in, maybe you've decided to follow Jesus or you're not in Gen Z, what can we do? Well, just like I started with a confession, I want to end with one. It's really easy for me to focus on the differences. I can be a real jerk in my mind about other people, specifically people in another generation that are just so different than me, right? I can focus on the differences rather than how at a heart level, at the core, we're really the same. 
I don't know about you, but I can get frustrated at stoplights when the person in front of me, they don't go on green because they're on their phone. I try to, like, polite honk, you know, like, hey, it's been, like, 15 seconds. <laughs> you know, I, I get frustrated and kind of annoyed when I see students huddled together at Seacliff. No one's talking, or maybe they're talking, but they're not looking at each other. They're just looking at their phones, and that can frustrate me. I can get annoyed. And I'm willing to bet, for many of you, it's the same. So if you haven't memorized our theme verse already, I really want to encourage you to memorize this verse. This is so helpful. And the next time you walk past a group of half a dozen high schoolers on their phones who aren't talking to each other or making eye contact, use that as an opportunity to check your thoughts. Use this verse to check your thoughts. What is your general attitude toward them? Are you looking in judgment or compassion? Are you thinking in that moment about how our hearts are all the same, or are you doing the internal eye roll, you know, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're on their phones. The message of forgiveness that Jesus offers has changed billions of lives across extremely different cultures over the past 2,000 plus years. And even though we've grown up in different circumstances, we all have the same heart. And it's the responsibility of those who have received new hearts to communicate the truth to the future. So I'm really excited about this series. I'm really excited about the changes that are happening in the student building. Actually, after the service, I'm going to head over to the student building. So feel free to come and join me. I can explain what's happening in there, and we can take a look at this before construction starts. It's a fun time in the history of the student ministry. I encourage you to join me over there. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that Despite our differences, you can change a heart. That your message, the truth of Jesus' love and forgiveness that goes out, that that can change a heart. That that can turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. That, God, you can take just this mass of compressed dirt, this spiritually dead thing, and, and turn it into a life-giving, spiritually alive heart. We're so grateful that, God, you do that. We ask that this week that you would help us to check our own hearts and thoughts towards other people that are different, that are in different generations that we might not understand. Help us to really see them the way that you do, Jesus, and let that encourage us to take the truth of the gospel to future generations. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church Podcast.